Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, January 19th, we are studying Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Jesus goes back to Capernaum to teach the large crowd that is gathered around him in the house. But that large crowd won't stop four men from getting their paralyzed friend in front of Jesus. And Jesus' opponents won't stop him from doing his work of forgiveness and healing for this man. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Linnell. Pastor Linnell serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So we get started this morning, Pastor Linnell, let's talk context. We've come through Mark chapter 1. We're starting chapter 2 today. What do we need to know about the gospel and the preceding chapter that will help us into these verses for today? Yeah, well, when, you, when you're reading through the gospel according to Mark, I mean, the, you know, the first question you should probably ask is, is who is Mark? And, and we've already spent a, a good amount of time in uh, previous shows, you know, going over that. But um, you know, for all the different things about Mark and whether Mark's household is the one that hosted the Last Supper or the one where Jesus, you know, appears after the crucifixion, and whether or not Mark was the, uh, you know, the young man with the, you know, the sheet that runs away uh, after the Garden of Gethsemane. I think really the most important thing uh, about Mark isn't speculation; it's stuff that we know, and it's his association with with both Peter and Paul as uh, as apostles at least for his role as a, as evangelist. And so, you know, Mark uh, presumed again to be the, the, you know, the nephew of of Barnabas, as is mentioned in Colossians 4, you know, he went with Paul on some of his missionary tour excursions. Um, And uh, Mark then was also in Rome because of some of these things. But uh, even though, even though perhaps we might mention first Mark's association with Paul, I think perhaps the more important association is Mark uh, and his relationship to Peter, because it seems as if his relationship with Peter is of first importance to him. Peter refers to Mark as his son, and in this case, we're talking about the in the spiritual way, you know, his spiritual son, right? So Peter is is the one uh, through whom Mark was was led to faith. So Peter is Mark's spiritual father, and then uh, keeping that in mind. Uh, the the gospel according to Mark, it's really, I think, always been understood as kind of a record of the teachings of, of Peter. I mean, it's called uh, Mark because Mark wrote it, but in essence, it's a, a record of Peter's teachings, his sermons, and in essence, then kind of serves as a, a first sort of uh, preaching manual for the church. And Mark's gospel then really only has kind of one point that it's trying to drive home, and that is, who is Jesus? And then showing and proving who Jesus is as the, as the Son of God. But it is divided then into two sections, and in, again, even though both sections Jesus is proving himself the Son of God, it's, it's uh, the, in the first section, he's doing this through the mighty deeds and miracles, and in the second section, he's doing that through his passion and through his resurrection. So our reading 
from Mark 2 is, of course, in the first section. And this chapter in Mark, it highlights the Jewish opposition to Jesus' proofs that he's the Son of God. So this is the first time in the gospel that you're going to see uh, opponents to Jesus and that you're going to see those those Jewish opponents. So as we get started, would you would you be kind enough? Could you read the first five verses in this cha- in this chapter for us? All right, Mark chapter two, verses one through five. And when he Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. That's Mark 2, verses 1 through 5. This is one of those fairly familiar stories to many Christians from Sunday school. Pastor Linnell, take us into this opening scene. Well, I I think I'd like to start really by asking a, a question. Right, maybe to all the listeners or to you or whatever. What what town is Jesus from? He's from from Nazareth, right? That's what it says in the text. And other, yeah, Luke yeah. talks about him growing up from Nazareth, and I think in John he's called. You know, he's he's noted from being from Nazareth. He's called a Nazarene in Matthew. He's from Nazareth. Sure, and and certainly that's true. So why does this text say that his home is in Capernaum? Right. That's a good question. We've talked a little okay. bit. He goes to Capernaum in 121, and we talked perhaps it could be an adopted home of sorts or a home base of sorts for ministry. What do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, apparently Jesus has, has moved his family right to Capernaum, and he did this kind of early in his ministry, I, I think, and that's pretty evident you know, from uh, the first verse in Matthew 9. And then also in, in John 2, 12, and, you know, one would imagine that, I mean, there's probably lots of different reasons for that. I mean, Jesus wasn't really received very well in Nazareth, um, and there were a number of different things. Um, but, it, I mean, it's it's pretty obvious, that, at least from some of these things, that he has moved his family and kind of his home to Capernaum. So he's he's still a Nazarene in that respect, right? He grew up in Nazareth, but, um, but it pretty early on, like Nazareth is not where all of his stuff is anymore. His family and everybody have moved to Capernaum. Um, And that was probably a good decision for just a lot of pragmatic reasons. But I think it's something that most of us either didn't know or or didn't think of, right? Because we're all just like, yeah, his mom and his brothers and everybody probably hanging out in Nazareth. And that's, I don't, that's, they're probably in Capernaum. They're in Capernaum at this point. So, so this is Jesus's home. It's his house. You know, and and so when the crowds are gathering, they they're coming to Jesus's home, or, or at the very least, maybe you know, perhaps his family's home, and um, and I just find that interesting, especially since um, in Mark we're going to be spending so much time um, being um, being told that he's the Son of God, right? Being having all of these proofs that Jesus is really God, but at the same time, you know, I, I just really find that interesting. Like I, I have to take a moment and wonder, you know, like what is god's house look like you know what is it what do you suppose it smells like in in god's kitchen you know does does god make his bed in the morning or is he one of those people that leaves it a mess does he carve little wooden horses you know being a carpenter's son and keep him on his nightstand those sorts of things i think there's a there's a wonderful 
um, there's a wonderful just opportunity for us to consider, you know, that this, the son of God is, is also a human being, you know, with a family and a home and those sorts of things. And so he's not so far off that he, he can't, um, he can't relate to us. And I, I find that to be comforting. Hmm. Martin Luther, I think, and I, I want to say it was a sermon of his that I read on the presentation of Jesus said that the the deeper we plunge Christ into the flesh, the better it is for us, or the more comfort there is for us. We, we never want to make Jesus something other than a human being. He's a sinless human being, but he's always a human being. And, and those moments in the Gospels where we see his humanity shine through, and I think Mark is going to give us a number of those moments, we should pause and take comfort in them well, take us into that comfort a little deeper, Pastor Now, What is the great comfort of seeing Jesus as a human being? Well, again, because it's, um, I don't, I don't want to be God. I don't want God to be far off. I mean, you know, certainly he is, he is all of those things, those, those grand, amazing sort of untouchable and unfathomable sort of things, this, you know, infinite qualitative you know distinction between god and man as you know as kierkegaard might say there's just there is all of that distance but the but the thing is is that he he chooses to condescend for our sake and um and it's one of the things that makes um at least lutherans a, a bit different is that um when god comes to us uh, he doesn't just come to us in 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 spirit, although that is wonderful and good, but he he comes to us in his in his flesh and blood. He he comes to us in our distress. He's he is not. Uh, it's it is beneath him, but he he refuses um, to consider it an indignity. But he, uh, you know, it's sort of like even when he's out in the wilderness and the and the devil is telling him, you know, just turn the stones to bread, just do the things. You know, people are talking about the temptation that it is, but the real temptation is for him to disassociate from his humanity. You know, look, you're hungry. Okay, fine, whatever, you're hungry. Look, you're God. Just do God things. But he refuses. He refuses to do that because he joins with us. And so, you know, either from a, an anti-Gnostic perspective or uh, from an, an anti Calvinist perspective, God, God doesn't sit far off. You know, He doesn't distance Himself from you when you are at your lowest and most broken, or even your most human. God is holy, but His holiness doesn't make Him other. His His holiness comes to you and and lifts you up and sanctifies you. So, you know, just those those sorts of things. Um, and even even just the little things like you know he's the god of all creation, but he's you know he still probably takes time enough to make his bed, because for him you know those little mundane details uh, are important. He cares about all of the things, and he takes delight in them. So that's that is the scene for this text. Jesus is at his home. God's at home, and he's there and. As we've seen throughout Mark so far, crowds continue to gather them to him, and he's teaching them. Keep driving into that scene for us. 
Yeah. So let's ask uh, another and perhaps more interesting question than does God make his bed? Uh, why, why did they bring the paralytic to Jesus? Why do, why do you think they brought him? It would seem, based on what has happened previously in the gospel, the very previous text, in fact, Jesus heals a leper. So it would seem that they bring him to Jesus so he can make him walk again. Did they, though? I mean, because that's always what I assume. But yeah. did did the text say, does it say anywhere that Jesus was healing people there at his house? Like, is that is that the scene that they present, that Jesus was healing people and they brought a paralytic? Because it's, I mean, it's not, right? Yeah. Mark says that he was preaching the word to them. Right. So, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that they didn't have any, any hope for that or whatever, but that doesn't seem to be the way that Mark 2 sets that up. There's no mention of healings and there's no mention of them coming because they want to be healed. What it does specifically mention is that all of those people gathered to hear his preaching and you can't, you know, well, okay, well, why did they, why did they have to bring him so close? Why did they have to do the thing? Well, look, if there's a crowd of people and they are just smashing their way in, like you don't want to be on the ground, right? You don't lay a person down in a crowd of people. They're going to be trampled to death. But this man, this paralytic, right? It's not just that he, he wants to hear Jesus. He needs to hear Jesus because Jesus has a word he has a word for the people and he has a word for the paralytic that's not going to be heard anywhere else. He has, he has grace and hope and comfort and forgiveness and peace in his words because this man is, is paralyzed, right? And so certainly God must be angry with him, right? Or at the very least, the man must have sinned at some point in the past or made some grave mistake that this paralysis was a punishment. And it's not quite as bad as leprosy, right? You know, it's not that bad. I mean, you know, goodness gracious. But obviously you screwed up somewhere. Otherwise you wouldn't be paralyzed. But if, but if Jesus has had mercy on lepers, then, then surely he might have mercy on a paralytic. You know, and if if Jesus has has gospel for those, then maybe he has something for me. And so this this paralytic, this man, he needs to hear Jesus because more than being healed in his in his body, this man needs to hear that God forgives him. And he needs to hear that God is not angry with him. He needs to hear that God loves him. And if anybody, if anybody's ever going to comfort this man's soul who every day lives with the constant reminder of his brokenness and his sin, who's that going to be? Well, maybe it'll be the one that they call Christ, the one who says that he comes to fulfill Isaiah's prophecies. And so they bring this guy forward, right? And how did they, how did they get up on the house, you know, if everybody was crowding around? Well, you know, it's those questions i mean they're they're interesting but they really shouldn't you know cause us any pause about the validity of the text i mean you know the houses are probably close together they're all probably about the same height and so you would have uh, stairways that go to either uh, on the outside of the homes that would either go to the upper rooms or that you could get onto the roofs to use as as extra space and so it really wouldn't have been that that terribly difficult to uh you know, to go up on a on a, a neighboring house and then roof hop, you know, if you needed to. There's lots of ways that you could have got up there. It's really not 
not that big of a deal, but they they get up there on uh, on this this house, uh, Jesus's house, and uh, and of course they're gonna they're gonna lower him in in front of Jesus. Um, and always is sort of a side note. I'm amazed at Jesus's patience because I'm kind of an introvert. So like the idea that hundreds of people are going to cram into my house and somebody's going to take my roof apart, I'd be irritated. (laughs) Jesus seems to be okay. He's like, oh, I'm fine. This is fine. This is okay. Right? So they they lower him in front of Jesus. Right? So they're lowering him in front of Jesus and the paralytic gets there. What does he ask for? Well, there there is no question that he asks, at least not explicitly. And he doesn't he doesn't ask for anything, you know. And that seems odd to me. You've got you've got a paralytic who's coming to be healed, and everybody else is crying out, "Have mercy, Son of David! Oh Lord, have mercy on me!" This paralytic gets there; they lower him in front of Jesus, and what does he say? He doesn't he doesn't say anything. Why doesn't he say anything? Well, I think there's two reasons that he he doesn't say anything, and the first is that he, he doesn't really need to, right? I mean, was it not obvious? Did, you know, paralytic guy being lowered from ceiling in front of Jesus? Does, is anybody confused about what they would want? Right. Um, and then the second, though, is perhaps in, in a little bit opposition to what I just said, is that maybe, maybe they, didn't, they didn't come to ask him for anything at all. They come to hear him speak. They, they came to hear his word. They came to hear God's word. I didn't come here to talk to Jesus. I came here to listen to him. I came here to, to hear his word. And so then again, the, the, the first reason uh, I, I maybe object to a bit, right? Is it, is, it, is it so obvious what they wanted? Did they desire physical healing? What was Jesus doing healing miracles that day? I mean, if so, then the, you know, they, maybe they would have waited their turn. People are coming, they're being healed, and then I suppose after being healed, they go on their way. They tell everybody about what Jesus did. Why did they need to lower themselves in from the ceiling if people were just coming in to be healed? And then obviously there would have been some sort of line. But they couldn't wait. They couldn't. They couldn't wait outside because because when it was over and everybody left, there would be nothing left to hear. They came to hear him, to hear his grace. But that's also why Jesus doesn't heal the man as we assume the man might have desired, right, in physical healing. But Jesus gives the man exactly that for which he came. He forgave his sins. And that's why he came. But does the gospel say that the man or his friends were disappointed in having his sins forgiven? Does, does the man complain? Does he say anything? Uh, do his friends complain? Hey, we... We brought him all the way up here and had to roof hop and bust it in. And you're going to say his sins are forgiven. We need him to walk. I don't, I don't, he's heavy. I don't want to bring him back up. Right. There's nothing like that. They came to hear Jesus speak of forgiveness. They came to hear Jesus speak of forgiveness. And then so much more than speaking of forgiveness, they had him actually forgive their sins. I think they got more than they ever hoped for. So, and I think that that's, that's an important sort of thing to remember um, because everybody's looking for signs and miracles. But when he talks about their faith, I think it's because, I think it's because more than miracles, they came, 
they came for the thing Jesus actually actually was there to bring. You know what I mean? In a similar way that he would commend Mary when she comes and sits at his feet and receives the one thing needful. That's that's and that's what it sounds like you're suggesting here. And I I you know it is definitely not specific in the text as to the reason they come. Generally, we supply that from our own imaginations, and there's that's not bad, but we always do want to let the text have the first and final say. And as you said, what the text says is Jesus is there preaching the word to the people. They come to hear the preaching of the word. Could there be some... some healing desire going on there. Ah, I mean, I have a hard time letting go of that, I suppose, Pastor Linnell. But, I, but yeah. I'm, not, I'm not against what you're saying by any means. What's the, what's the importance of, of seeing these men and the paralytic as coming to Jesus first and foremost to receive his teaching? Why is that a, an important point? How does that change or make a difference in the way that we would take this text as Christians still? Yeah, so one of the things that I think we do too often is we uh, we separate the the healing miracles from the forgiveness of sins, um, and this is sort of this kind of this weird um, um, false separation that we have between physical things and spiritual things. And so Jesus is coming and he's doing his miracles and he's doing those healings, and we think that those things are proof that he's you know that he's God. Um, but, um, and this sort of leads into the second half of the text is, you know, what are those miracles really there to prove? And, and if they're just there to prove that he really is God, why is that important? Why do you care that he's God if he's doing the, you know, the healing miracles? Why do we care who does that just as so long as they're healed? Or, you know, we see, we see him uh, healing people in these miracles um, but then we don't ever really connect that. How does that get connected to his work on the cross in the forgiveness of sins? Those two things are connected, and they have to be connected. And Jesus connects them uh, for us in the rest of uh, in the rest of this text, in the rest of this passage. And I think more than anything else, um, that's really what this is what this is about. And it's why. If you if you do this thing where you you say that in the you know in the beginning of the text they're coming there because they want to have a healing, and then he he sort of forgives their sins, I think that it I think that it it just puts the the cart before the horse a little bit. Uh, maybe we could maybe we could read about the disagreement here that he has with uh, the opposition with the, the scribes of the Pharisees here, and then we can flush that out a little bit more. Sounds good. So the rest of the text, now in Mark chapter 2, verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, and said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, 
so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. That's the rest of the text. That's Mark 2, verses 6 through 12. Peshel and Nell, we've got about three minutes here on this side of the break. In verse 6, it is the scribes who begin the conversation with Jesus. They've got this, well, maybe on this side of the break, just tell us a little bit about the, the scribes. This is the first time we've met in Mark's gospel. Who are they? Well, the, the scribes, the, the Pharisees, I mean, you know, Jesus, um, Jesus has already uh, earned himself uh, some attention. Um, and we can see that in perhaps some of the, the other gospels, specifically in John, that uh, Jesus starts off right away by getting everybody's attention. Right. Um, you know, flipping tables, doing all sorts of things. Um, so uh, they're really looking already for an excuse uh, to get Jesus They're They've come to hear him uh, speak and they're they're sort of malicious in their in their way of doing this. Uh, notice that they don't challenge him. Right. It's not something that they said out loud. They're not looking to discredit him against the crowd. They're looking for charges to bring against him. So whether or not people uh, know that these guys are scribes and Pharisees, whether they uh, know that they are opposition, you know, whether or whether they are sort of incognito opposition is irrelevant. Um, they are there and they're they're there specifically to listen to what Jesus says so that they can try to bring charges against him on the basis of his teachings. Um, and that's that's what this crew is. And we'll take a look at those charges that they're trying to bring against him on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUL. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, January 19th. We're looking at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We've got Pastor Sean Linnell with us. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska. Pastor Linnell, prior to the break, we got started talking about the scribes who are there listening to Jesus, looking for a reason to question him, and they're doing so privately in their hearts. They ask in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? What is the objection that these scribes have to Jesus? Right. So the objection that they have, at least at the one that they they put forth here, is that Jesus forgave this man's sins. Now, uh, deep down, you know, you want to say that their objection is jealousy or their objection is fear because Jesus is disrupting the status quo of the religious industrial complex or whatever, however you want to say that. that that's all fine. But the, the point of objection that they have here is that Jesus said 
you know, your sins are released. And so, and that's the other thing, right? When Jesus says that your sins are forgiven, like that's not generic gospel. Like he says, your your sins, they are thus released, right? Released are they. It's This is performative language. He's not just saying, like, you might share the gospel with somebody and say, oh, well, you know, Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins. Your sins are forgiven because of Jesus. No, this is more like absolution that you receive in the at the beginning of service, right? You know, I forgive you your sins. Jesus is performative, performatively releasing this man's sins. And it is to this that they object, right? Why is this man uh, forgiving anybody's sins? Um, and so, so that's the objection. Now, uh, when Jesus is responding to them, uh, he says, it says here that he perceives in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. What Mark is doing there in verse eight is he's letting us know that Jesus is not noticing this on their faces. He's not noticing this as like a shift in their disposition. It's not that Jesus is just supremely intuitive um, no, this is this is a divine omniscience that Jesus knows what's going on as if he can hear their inner monologue because he's God and he can do that, right? So this is this is one of the God things that he does. So then he says to them, right, why do you question these things in your hearts? And he says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? And again, these are these are sort of aorist imperative things. They're not, you know, kind of left up in the air. These are really kind of commands that are being given. You know, your sins are forgiven. You know, your sins released are they, or or in or in another way here, right, to get up and walk. Um, and then, of course, Jesus asks that question, but then he answers his own question. Uh, and he says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Now, this kind of takes us back to the, the previous issue that we had, where we had um, sort of the the two options. Did they come and bring the paralytic so that the paralytic would have his sins forgiven, so that he could hear the gospel and the good news? so that he could have comfort for his soul, or did he come in order to uh, get healed from his paralysis? And I think, again, part of the problem that we do is that we end up separating those two things, and Jesus here, he doesn't. He shows how those two things are related. Really, all brokenness that we have, all physical brokenness that we have in this world is a result of the fallenness of sin. So, all of the bad things, right, whether that's you know, paralysis or whether that's some sort of, you know, genetic disorder or whether that's cancer or whether that's, you know, a hurricane or, or or any of those things. Those are all because we live in a broken and fallen world. And one of the things that I, I need to say before we move on about that is that those things are not direct punishments for sin. If you have cancer, that's not because God's punishing you. It's not because you did some particular thing, and then that's a punishment for that thing. What I mean is, is that because this world is broken, because we, we in, in, our, in our very being are conceived broken, that brokenness doesn't just have spiritual implications, but it has physical implications. And we should all know that because the penalty for all sin is, is what? It's death. Well, sometimes 
you know, in that sense, then sin is its own punishment. That God doesn't have to come down when somebody dies and specifically smite them. You're going to die because we live in a broken world and, and we're sinners. And that's, that's what that means. So anytime, anytime that Jesus is healing somebody, that has to be accompanied by the forgiveness of sins. He's forgiving their sins. He's restoring their relationship to God. And as a proof, as a proof of that spiritual reality, there is a physical, a physical manifestation, a physical miracle of that. And so in this particular case, we see that presented pretty directly by Mark, right? He wants you to know, and he tells you in no uncertain terms, that the physical healing is a proof for the forgiveness of sins. Now, why is that a proof that Jesus is God? Are you telling me that, you know, there, there weren't other prophets or other sorts of things, anybody that could do that? Well, it's tied specifically to what the, the Pharisees say. This is blasphemy. Nobody can forgive sins but God. They're right. They're just wrong about who Jesus is, right? Because they think Jesus is a dude. But he's more than that. He's, he's the God dude, right? Jesus. And so when we, when we see those two things, whether they were coming for the forgiveness of sins or whether they were coming for a healing, I think it's, it's better and more important that they understood that the forgiveness of sins is the primary act by which God restores and then the physical restoration that comes afterwards and it comes as a result. Now, one of the questions that we might have is if God is forgiving sins and that creates a physical restoration, right? A physical healing. Why doesn't that happen continue to happen today? Well, it does just not in the same way. And maybe that sounds a little underwhelming, but stay with me for a second. The physical restoration of this paralytic, that's wonderful and very exciting for the paralytic. That paralytic is still going to die. Jesus uh, raises Lazarus from the dead. That's wonderful. Lazarus would still, would still die again. The miracles that Jesus does are proof of the forgiveness of sins that he brings. But the true healing the fulfillment of that restoration is not found in the healing of a paralytic, but in the resurrection of the dead on the last day. And this is a hope that pertains to all of us. So when we come into church, when we have the absolution for our sins, when we uh, are baptized, when we receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ from the sacrament of the altar, these things uh, give the forgiveness of sins, and then what comes with them is life and salvation. For where there is forgiveness of sins, there is life and salvation. We have that life now, but that life comes in its fullness on the last day, when Jesus comes to raise all of the dead and to restore physical bodies and really all of creation to make a new heaven and a new earth, where all of these bad things are no more forever. In this chapter, and in this story, we said very much, but it's, it's all contained right there in his response to these Pharisees, uh, to these scribes, how those things are all connected and how that stems from who he is and what he's come to do. 
In the Apostles' Creed, in the third article, we connect these two things one right after the other when we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, and then right after that, the resurrection of the body. That connection, as as you said, that's where the fullness of the healing actually comes in the resurrection that we wait for to receive on that last day. One of the things in the text that I think we should point out, Pastor Linnell, is that this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's there in verse 10. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And that's one of those titles for Jesus that I think we're accustomed to hearing, but perhaps we sometimes skip over without thinking about it and pondering a little bit. Why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? Yeah, so that's another really sort of interesting and kind of fun thing that I think we take for granted. But, you know, the Son of Man, uh, it's a title that Jesus uses to refer to himself, even though even though Jesus never comes out and says, I am the Son of Man. It, it's still pretty obvious, right? And so this title, it's a big deal today, um, and people have written volumes on it, right? As Christians, we're pretty familiar with it, but it's it's a big deal primarily because Jesus made it a big deal. It comes from uh, the book of Daniel, uh, really sort of where it's introduced in 7 uh, verses 13 and 14. And again, we as Christians, we understand that to be a messianic title, but you know, the Jews in Jesus's day, they just really didn't make, I think, as big of a deal of it as, as we do. Um, the Jews, they were much more focused on Messiah, right? Messiah. And of course, um, you know, we, we understand those two things to be related, but for them, they were just, it was just Messiah. Yeah. And Jesus is Messiah. True. But, you know, Jesus almost always kind of avoids that term Messiah. Um, and I think he does that for two reasons. You know, the term Messiah, he doesn't, he doesn't deny it, but he doesn't really use it, first of all, because of its, of its political implications, I think. You know, at the time, where Jesus is, Messiah, it was thought of by many to be a temporal figure that would come and restore Israel's independence and their glory as a nation. I think um, most most of our listeners are, are pretty familiar with the idea that Rome controlled Israel and that Jesus is ultimately crucified falsely as a seditionist, right? And you have that whole thing of, you know, the triumphal entry and the people freaking out and thinking, you know, he's coming in and the king, the son of David— so there's that, and he never denies that, but he's he's not trying to do that here. But I think I think what he's doing, and the other reason that he's doing that, and the reason that it's brought out so prominently in Mark, is because when he uses this term "son of man," it's a it's a, a salvific figure that that is not specifically tied to uh, the nation of Israel, as in he's coming to save Israel. When when you say the Son of Man, it connects him as a as a messianic figure. Messianic figure, he is the Messiah. But you know, it connects him to all of humanity. So it it expands and broadens his view, uh, or his the the place that he's come to to deliver and to be over. And one of the things about Mark, as you're reading through Mark's Gospel, is you have to kind of notice that Mark has a, a pretty Gentile slant to things. Um, that even even though Mark is following along Peter, and we might want to say something like, you know, Peter has sort of a, a, a mission to the Jews, where Paul is a little bit more to the Gentiles. Mark is doing this not over in Jerusalem, 
But Mark is doing this sort of with Peter and in Rome and is following along with um, with Peter's sermons to the Gentiles. And so Mark, as a gospel, uh, really kind of does away with a lot of things that are specifically concerned with with you know Jewish culture and Jewish stuff and presents things in a way that is uh, very favorable to the Gentiles and and kind of easy for Gentiles to process. And so here this title of Son of Man makes that that messianic claim, but it makes it in a way that disassociates it from the political ramifications of being the uh, the Jewish messianic figure and makes it the messianic figure for all mankind. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. And I, I mean, that term just son of man, I think is a, like you said, it's, it's a generic enough that it's not going to arouse a ton of opposition, at least just at the mention of it. You know, they don't, it, it's, it's something that the scribes are upset at Jesus for saying your sins are forgiven. They call that blasphemy, but they don't come back and get mad at him again because he's called himself the son of man. They don't consider that blasphemy, it seems. And so Jesus does does make use of it as a, a way that he can speak about himself and what he's come to do. And I think you're right in expanding that not just for the people of Israel, but for all humanity is the one who has come for all mankind. And I think it's, I mean, I think it's, significant that he first uses that term here when he's talking about the forgiveness of sins. The son of man is the one who has the authority to forgive sins, that this man who is God, he's the one who's got authority to forgive sins and, and specifically authority on earth to forgive sins. And I think that's a really important point that you made. This is Jesus here and now forgiving this man's sins. He's not talking about something that happened at some other time or in some other place or that will happen somewhere else. He's talking about what he's doing here and now, which I think, and, and you've, you've talked a little bit about that. At least you brought up the absolution that happens on a Sunday morning or privately with your pastor, where your pastor says, I forgive you in the stead. And by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. So how does, how do those two things relate? This authority that Jesus has as the son of man, and then the forgiveness of sins that pastors speak in his stead and by his command still today. Right. Uh, you know, that was, cause I didn't grow up, I didn't grow up Lutheran and the whole absolution thing was really tough for me coming from an evangelical setting because I was, I was very much sort of like uh, the, the scribes here where I was like, what are you doing? That's blasphemy. And, um, and it was really kind of tough. Um, but one of the things um, that I think helped with that, aside from just seeing in the gospel places where Jesus told his disciples to go uh, and forgive sins. So in the end of John and, you know, and the like where, where he just basically says, go forgive them their sins. Um, aside from that, it's, it's a thing where um, as pastors, we are, we are forgiving sins, but it's, it's the office that's doing that. Um, and so the, the office of pastor is is endowed with the certain authority because the office is there to represent christ and so whereas i'm forgiving sins i'm not forgiving sins as sean like that's that's not what's happening i'm forgiving sins as pastor i don't get to just run around and do whatever i want i'm obligated when somebody uh asks for forgiveness when they say forgive me when they repent like, if I don't like them, that's irrelevant. 
even if I don't, if I don't believe them, just, I just think for whatever stupid reason that, you know, they've been doing this a lot and they don't really mean it. They're going to go out and sin again. That's irrelevant. I am a vending machine. If you ask for forgiveness, I am obligated by my office to forgive you. But on the other side, it doesn't matter how much I love you. It doesn't matter how much I like you. It doesn't matter how much I'm worried about you. It doesn't matter if it is my own son. If you are unrepentant, there is nothing I can do for you. I don't make decisions. I dispense grace, you know? And so in that regard, then it's it's the office that does those things. And that's a bit hyperbolic. I think there there's some there's some nuance to the things that I just said. So all of you very deep theologians out there, don't get mad at me. But it's a it's a pretty good introductory lesson to to how it is that that works. And we see those things all the time. We see, you know, those things in in our society. People occupy offices, those offices have authority, but the individual in the office does not have that authority when they are not occupying that office. So in that respect, then you take a look at the title, right? Well, the title here is Son of Man, and that's why he gets to forgive sins, because he's the Son of Man. And it means something a little bit different for Jesus than it does for me, but it's still it's still then associated with that office. And Jesus is the only one that gets to occupy that office because of who he is. Um, and then this other office that exists, it does it does exist because of who Jesus is, but I'm just sort of a transient occupant. Jesus is the the one and eternal son of man and judge who stands forever. Well, and, and I think that's why it is very important that the pastor, when he says that, it is by the authority of Christ, or it is at his command and in his stead. Because when the, you know, when the pastor speaks those words of forgiveness, it is not his forgiveness that you receive. That, that's, a, that's a question, I think, that's in the right for individual confession and absolution, that the pastor asks mm-hmm. the penitent, do you believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness? And the answer to that question is yes. You you don't need Sean Linnell's or Tim Apple's forgiveness when you're going to your pastor. You need Christ's forgiveness. And as you said, that's what he's there to give you. It's not his forgiveness. It's God's forgiveness. And that really does make all the difference. Yeah. No, it, it, it really does. Um, you know, and when they, when they, when I first got here, uh, one of the questions was, uh, you know, how how do you want me to, uh, as from a parishioner, how do you want me to talk to you? You know, am I call you Sean? Do I call you Reverend Linnell? Do I call you Pastor? I said I don't care. Just don't call me late for dinner. Ha ha ha. <laughs> no, but um, but I told him I said, well, it depends on what you want, because um, you know, if if uh, I'm not going to freak out, I don't have that that much of an ego, but um, at some point in time, you're going to be in distress. And you're going to call me and you're going to want me to come. And if you want to see Sean, then call me Sean. But if in that moment of distress, you want your pastor, then you should probably call me pastor. Because if you spend 10 years calling me Sean, that's not just going to change miraculously in the moment. Now, um, you know, at least around here, I think that we've, most people or whatever, in a way, I still have friends and I still hang out with people, but, you know, I, I use the clerical, uh, in that sort of way, right? Like if, if I'm wearing the clerical, I'm, it's because I'm, I'm usually doing some sort of official capacity stuff. And if I'm not, then I'm not. So, I mean, that's, that's why all of those little, all of those liturgical vestments and those things, I mean, they're, they're all really symbolic, but they're there to help us focus our attention of when somebody is occupying the office 
and when somebody is is not. And that doesn't mean that, you know, when I'm not occupying the office, I get to go out and be a jerk, right? Because I'm I'm always going to reflect as a as a Christian upon those things. Um, but if you know, if I'm if I go over to your house for a barbecue, I mean, you can call me pastor, I'm not going to object to that, but it's your house. You're praying over the meal. I'm not going to do it. You know, it's, you're the, you're the man of the house. So, so those sorts of things. Um, and I think people have been pretty good at keeping that sort of distinction between, between when, when a person occupies the office and when they don't, um, still always bearing the responsibility as a, as a Christian, um, you know, that you reflect upon those things, even when you're perhaps not performatively acting in them, but, but stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, that that that's a I, I appreciate what you say there about, you know, what what are you looking for? And and your pastor is there to bring to you the forgiveness of sins. It's not wrong to be friends with your pastor. I think it's generally pretty helpful. But he's not there to be your friend. He's there to give you the forgiveness of sins, to declare to you what Christ has declared that your sins are forgiven. And and Pastor Lon, we got about 5 minutes here. I, I don't know if we if we really answered it, maybe you did, but Jesus asked that question, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. And you connected those two, I think very well that we don't want to separate those two. Is there an answer to Jesus question? Is one harder than the other or, or how do we, I mean, hold them together? Yes. But, but is there an answer to that? I think maybe the other question uh, that's sort of underneath of that is which one is easier for you to hear? You know, and I and I think that would have been also for me as a when I was kind of in an even evangelical persuasion, I think a, a pretty powerful question. Let's say somebody comes representing God and uh and they miraculously heal somebody's paralysis. Does anybody object to that? Does anybody freak out? Or do they give thanks to God? Well, they give thanks to God. But if that same person comes and they start forgiving sins, then why is it that you over here freak out so much? Which one is the greater blessing? You know, when we talk about which one is easier to say, you know, it's, yeah, which one's harder to do? Which is the greater feat? Well, the, the greater feat is the forgiveness of sins. And you see them as separate, but they're not. Which one is easier? It's the same thing. You can't, you can't heal that way if you can't forgive sins. You know, um, and so I think it's really getting at the heart of these scribes and, and really the, you know, the rest of us is that we are more than happy to accept blessings from God. But part of the reason that it's so hard for us to accept the forgiveness of sins is that you first have to admit that you're broken and that you're broken in a way that you can't see. If you're walking around and you're a paralytic, you can hardly deny your brokenness. And so everybody gives thanks to God when that brokenness is healed. But in order to repent, you have to confess to a brokenness that someone can't see. You have to confess to a brokenness that we try to hide so desperately that we don't want to admit. But it's in that brokenness that we need the greater healing. And so, you know, Jesus sort of reveals that to them in a way that's, I think, really difficult for them because then they also have to, they have to stop focusing on what's wrong with him and take a look at what's wrong with, with them. But the point is not to beat us up. The point really is the, to focus on the blessing that comes, the true blessing that comes, which is the forgiveness of sins, which leads to life and salvation, 
And I, I, and I think that's what Jesus is doing mostly in that question, is revealing where the true brokenness and the true healing lies. Got just about two minutes here, Pastor Linnell. Help us wrap things up for the morning. Point us toward Christ crucified and risen from this text. Uh, Jesus here in Mark 2 uh, first refers to himself as the Son of Man. And it's a, a title that maybe at the time people didn't realize how important it was. But it's a title that I think we understand a little bit better now. And certainly we will understand a whole lot better on the last day. Because Jesus comes to forgive sins. And he comes to do that through his death and resurrection on the cross. And in the forgiveness of sins, there is also a resurrection to come. For Jesus didn't just die, but he also rose again. He comes as the Son of Man, not as a, a representative of Israel as a, as a nation, but he comes as the Savior of all mankind. And so, as we read through this text this morning, hopefully what we can see is the desperate need that everyone who is broken has to hear the gospel. And that gospel is the forgiveness of sins in the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And in hearing that forgiveness and in receiving that through faith, which Christ sees that they have, there is an eternal life that awaits for us with Christ Jesus, both now and in the new heaven and the new earth that he establishes when he comes. Pastor Sean Linnell is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Blair, Nebraska, helping us this morning with Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Pastor Linnell, thanks for being our guest today. Always a pleasure. Jesus is the Son of Man who has authority on earth to forgive sins. He has done the harder thing. He has, by his death and resurrection, won forgiveness for you, and he has delivered that forgiveness. He continues to deliver that forgiveness to you through his word proclaimed to you by your pastor. Thanks be to God. I'm your host here on Sharp Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.